and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Isioma. Have you ever wondered how we got that song or that poem? Mary's Magnificat, as we call it. How did it come to be in the Bible? Well, imagine Mary, the mother of Jesus, is now an old woman, perhaps sometime around the year 60 A.D. She sits down to talk with a guy called Luke, who is referred to her by some of the apostles, especially the apostle Paul. Now, we have no idea if Mary lived that long or if she ever met Luke, the guy who, the gospel writer who may be the doctor, who is the traveling companion of Paul's. But allow me to use my preacher's imagination for a bit in order to make a point. Imagine Luke sits down to interview Mary over goblets of wine. Okay, they didn't have tea or coffee back then. Okay, Maybe water, could have been wine. Hey, they did, um, so why, why does, excuse me, why does Luke want to interview Mary? Well, because she was one of the key eyewitnesses to the life of her son. Of course, what we have here in these first few passages in Luke features Mary heavily, and it will do so until the end of chapter 2. And so today we begin a series in the Gospel of Luke that will go into much of 2020 and likely beyond. So we're going to take it in chunks with some things in between. And especially during this Advent season, we're going to start right here with all these stories about Jesus' infancy and all the characters that surround him. So as you heard Christian, our service coordinator, mention, we're having these Pomoja services on the 22nd and 29th. So if you are going to be in town, we do invite you to come and worship all together on those two Sundays. There will not be children's church. We're going to give our teaching assistants some time off. And so if you're new to LBC, what does a Pomoja service look like? Well, again, it's a service where we are all together. Pomoja means together in Kiswahili. It's a service where we ask the adults to come down a bit and for the kids to come up a bit as we worship and learn together. And so we'll have a bit of teaching, more like a sermonette of around 10 minutes And we design them in ways that will hopefully engage the kids as well. And so, parents, there will be activity pages provided, coloring pages and such, especially for the little ones. And we'll be doing a lot of singing, especially on the 22nd, right before Christmas. A lot of Christmas carols. So, returning to the start of our series and the passage today, Luke's overall message in these first few stories is this. 
God is true to his word and fulfills his promises to his people. God is true to his word and fulfills his promises to his people. As we begin this study in the Gospel of Luke, especially during this Advent season, I pray, LVC, that through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would know this God who is, in fact, true to his word. That in Jesus we see him keeping his promises. And I pray that that would give us confidence in our individual lives to trust what he is doing, despite the circumstances that often threaten to consume us. And so let's dive in and begin by looking at Luke's introduction. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Now you've seen from what I've highlighted there, and really from these first four verses, we get a preview of Luke's entire approach and purpose throughout all of his writing. So these three handles will help us to see how God is true to his word and fulfills his promises to his people. Fulfillment, fact-finding, and focus. So first, fulfillment. If you and I were to sit in that interview with Mary and Luke, we would be entering into a very Jewish conversation, a very Jewish story. In fact, to fully understand the weight of these first chapters especially, if not the entire story of Jesus, it would be ideal if we could immerse ourselves in first century Jewish culture in Palestine. But for now, we'll do our best to set the scene. The main characters in Luke's first three chapters are John and Jesus. But to get to him, we first meet Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary. And this angel called Gabriel. He's quite busy in these first few chapters. The three humans were steeped in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses and the prophets. God's promises to the people throughout the patriarchs and the matriarchs and down to the prophets over the centuries. So LVC, as we come to another New Testament book, as we call it. Let's be careful not to think of the Old Testament as the Jewish story. And then when we turn the page from Malachi to Matthew chapter 1, that now we're in the Christian story. No, because if you're here as a Christian this morning, we who call ourselves Christians, especially Gentile Christians, even Gentile Christians, are in many ways living out the Jewish story. We have been grafted Into this big vine, Paul says. And we are living out those new covenant promises, which are the fulfillment of all those promises made to Abraham millennia ago. And so in our very Jewish story today, we have three main scenes. We have 
the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah, then to Mary. And then we have this conversation between Mary and her cousin Elizabeth, where Mary breaks into a song of praise to the Lord. So let's look at where we see this idea of fulfillment. We're told about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. Remember our Jewish story, our Jewish perspective. By no means were they sinless or perfect, but in regard to law-keeping, these were righteous people living blamelessly among the people. But they were childless. Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. She was barren. If you're even a bit familiar with the Bible, does this sound familiar? If you were here during our Genesis series, I hope this sounds familiar. How many of the matriarchs were unable to conceive, whether because of old age or whatever reason? Sarai, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, so many others. So with all that running in the background, this old man, Zechariah, a priest, gets chosen one day to serve in the temple. And there, while he's burning the incense, the the angel Gabriel appears to him. Look at verse 16. Zechariah and Elizabeth's unexpected unexpected son, John, will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And then the following verse make people's hearts ready. People's hearts would be turned to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Friends, Gabriel is sharing the gospel with Zechariah. He is sharing literally good news. He tells him at the end of the conversation that he was sent to tell him good news. Well, one might expect an angel, a messenger from the Lord, to appear to a priest. But then Gabriel visits the most unlikely of people. Mary from a podunk town called Nazareth is not barren, but she's a virgin. Likely a teenage girl. And so the angel's promise of conception seems even more far-fetched. Following a 400-year period of silence, we begin to see how God chooses to break that silence and to bring about the fulfillment of all his promises. And he does so in a most unexpected way. Mary's son would be called Jesus, which is the Greek form of the name Yeshua or Joshua, meaning the Lord saves. He will be great, says in verse 32, and would be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So then Mary goes to stay with her cousin, cousin Elizabeth for three months. Over these three months, Mary begins to process this news with Elizabeth. And eventually, in a song or poem of praise that Isioma read, her teenage self captures the reality of the fulfillment of God's plan. 
Look at verses 54 and 55. God has not forgotten his covenant promises to Abraham thousands of years before. Mary knows that this was an eternal covenant, eternal promises now coming true. And the unborn baby that she carries in her womb. Can you imagine the weight of that news to this young woman? What good news. What a gospel. Whether you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus or not, what is the story of your life? Have you swallowed our globalized consumerist culture understanding, the pill of our globalized consumer culture that tells you that your story is mainly about you? Well, that pill claims to hold out liberation to you. But many of us have found that our little individual stories have been caught up in a much bigger story. And because of that, we have found our liberation. And that's why I think that many of us experience feelings of transcendence during Advent, during Christmas time. Because through much of that celebration and the poetry and the majestic music, we get caught up into something much bigger, even just for a season, something much bigger than our little selves. So, fulfillment. God will fulfill His promises to His people. Well, then, in these initial stories, the idea of fact-finding helps us to see how Luke is true to his word. Notice again what Luke says in verse 3. I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And so he decides to write an orderly account for this guy called Theophilus. Luke is interested in fact-finding. Now, this is one of the places in the Bible where we get clues to how it was written. Luke, as I said, was on this fact-finding mission. And so a few points to make. First, notice he says that many have undertaken to draw up an account of what has been fulfilled. We just talked about fulfillment. We don't know how many exactly, but at the very least, he's likely, likely referring to Mark, whose gospel account was written first. And so, so it's clear that if you look closely at Matthew, if, at Mark, Matthew, and Luke, that they're very similar in terms of structure and content. Well, because Mark was first, it's likely that Luke and Matthew used him as a source. And then, as Luke mentions, through their own investigation, including the interviewing of sources like Mary or others, or using bits of material that were written down and passed down by eyewitnesses, they then wrote down their own account. Well, then, second, Luke calls his account orderly. This does not mean chronological order but a kind of logical ordering in order to kind of make to make the kind of points that Luke wants to make under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So part of what this means 
oh, 21st century Bible reader, is that we should not expect ancient history to be written like we might read a newspaper article or a biography today. To first century people, this would have been the kind of biography that they were used to. And Luke knows that. So to dismiss the accounts of Jesus and assume they're not historical, just because they don't read like our modern biographies, is both unfair and wrong. Now, let me speak to three categories of people. First, followers of Jesus. I hope that you draw some bit of encouragement from this text and this teaching today. We all have had or continue to have genuine questions about this book that we hold in our hands or click through on our phones. But we can be confident Christians that we have the book that God intended for us to have. We have the book that God intended for us to have. It is his word, Luke says. God gets to say who God is and what God has done. If we've studied the Bible deeply, we've seen how it confirms the fact that if there is a creator of the universe, that that creator of the universe would want to speak to humanity Okay, let's just assume if this creator of the universe wanted to speak to humanity, particularly his people, that that God could find a way to do it truthfully, reliably, credibly, and to preserve it for all time. Well, next category of people. Perhaps you're here as a skeptic and you quite honestly don't believe the Bible's claims about Jesus. Namely, that you and I need him in order to get right with God. Well, first of all, welcome. You are always welcome here in this church service. Maybe you came because of an invitation at last night's carol service, or you just like to come around to church during the Christmas holidays. In any case, welcome. I wonder how you take the claims of the author in these first four verses. Do you believe that after careful investigation that this and other accounts are true accounts of what actually happened in history based on credible eyewitness testimony? If not, I wonder why not. For many in our world, whether secular or pseudo-religious, The conventional wisdom is that these are nice stories with some nice moral teaching, but ultimately are stories of myth, meaning fabrication, made-up stories. But if you're here and you're an open-minded person, I wonder if you might be open to actually reading these stories in the Bible or reading them again and honestly asking yourself, Does this read like a myth? Would stories intended to make up history actually be written like this? In January, our church is going to be offering something called the Alpha Course, where any question is fair game as we consider the claims about Jesus in the Bible. And so if that interests you at all, come talk to me, sign up at the 
welcome table or talk to anyone that you've seen up here today. Or even if you just want to meet with someone one-on-one to read one of these gospel accounts and just have an open discussion about it. We would love to do that. Well, the third category of people is soon-to-be university students. And I'm so glad the older youth are with us today. There aren't many of you going off to university in a year or two, but you hold a special place in my heart. Because in my first semester of uni, I had a big crisis of faith. Much of it had to do with scholarly critiques of the Bible, a book that I had come to trust and even love because it was the revelation of the God who I had come to know, with whom I had a growing relationship. Well, first week of school at a secular university, in the religion department, I stepped into a course called New Testament, and my faith took a bit of a beating. Now, in retrospect, I find it a bit odd that at many universities in the West, a book on the Bible is usually taught by a detached, critical scholar who does not even profess to be a believer. Whereas a course in Judaism or Islam will be taught by a practicing Jew or Muslim. Just a little digression for free. Just something, just something to put out there. I could talk about all this for a long time, but suffice it to say that starting with chapter 1 of Matthew, my professor attempted to pick it apart. And I remember with crystal clarity what he talked about in that first class in August 1993. For me, he was picking it apart. But looking back now, what he argued is incredibly silly and laughable from a scholarly perspective. What I wish I knew then, students, and what I'm keen for you to know now, is that it's not just people of faith who come to their sacred text with assumptions and presuppositions. Critical scholars, you need to hear this, critical scholars may appear to be or even think they're objective and detached. But trust me, they come with their own presuppositions as well. There are, in fact, many people in this world who have a keen interest in the Bible not being true. And one does not have to be a cynic to know that controversy gets people published, it helps them get tenure, and even helps them make a name for themselves. So students, don't just take my own word for it. Do your own homework. And I'm confident you will see that these scriptures have stood the test of time for not just 300 years when critical scholarship in the West really took shape, but almost two millennia. This book is reliable, trustworthy, and authoritative for our lives. And hopefully you and others will be around when in 2020 I hope to do a short series on these very claims. So let me give you a bit of an example of what this can look like, the kind of idea that these are just myths, these are fabrications. Because I would argue that if you come with an open mind to look at these scriptures, that if one is writing to make up a myth, you would not write it this way. 
Okay, so imagine we have the global conspiratorial Christian Committee for World Domination. And as is assumed, we would have this group of men who get together sometime in the first or second or third century. And they say, okay, guys, we've got to carry on these stories about this guy named Jesus. We've got to make up some stories so that we can take over the world with this religion. So the chairman stands up and says, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. We have to say that this guy, Jesus, rose from the dead. And so the first eyewitnesses are going to be women. And this guy over here says, oh, Mr. Chairman, great idea. Because in that day, women's testimony in court wasn't even valid. So that's a great idea. And they all go, yes. Well, then another guy says, okay, in fact, let's just say it's the first century and Peter's there. Peter was a friend of Jesus and he's really interested to make sure that the name of Jesus is carried on throughout history. And so Peter says, all right, I'm going to tell this guy, Mark, to write down all of my stories. But guys, I got a great idea. Okay, I'm going to make myself look like a total idiot in these stories. I'm going to make all kinds of mistakes. I'm going to even say that I didn't even know Jesus. And other guys are like, yes, that's a great idea. Let's write that all down. You get my point. Students or others, if you read a Dan Brown novel or you read a book by someone like Bart Ehrman, please look at the other perspective and ask yourself once again, would these stories have been written this way if they were meant to make up history? Well, wherever you are in your understanding of God or in your faith, the claim of these first four verses and even Luke's entire collection of writings is that history has actually come to fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. So whoever you are, are you taking the time, giving it enough thought and doing your homework to see if all this is actually really true? And that leads us to our last handle on how God is true to his word and fulfills his promises to his people. Focus. Luke tells this guy, Theophilus, that he's written this orderly account so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke wants to focus Theophilus' attention on the purpose of his writing. And the aim, he says, is certainty. Certainty. Wow, LVC, I wrestled with this word here in verse 4 for quite some time while I was preparing this sermon. I don't often like to think in terms of certainty, even as a pastor. In fact, I'm much more comfortable when Paul tells the young man Timothy to continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. And Paul also says that we see through a glass darkly. So on the one hand, we don't have 100% certainty about anything in this life because we're human beings. But on the other hand, we need to come to grips with what Luke is saying here. Because I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this. So what does he mean? 
Well, between 60 to 80 AD, whenever Luke was writing this exactly, Theophilus and those who would be reading this after him, maybe they had a copy of Mark, but more than likely they had one, they'd heard one of Paul's letters read out loud to them, including something like the letter to the Philippians, where in chapter 2, Paul is quoting a hymn of the early church that summarized the teaching about Jesus. So it's like as if all we had was the Nicene Creed, which we recited last week during the Lord's Supper. And now Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, has carefully investigated and is writing Scripture, namely collecting eyewitness testimony to help them know with certainty the things they've been taught. So the Greek word that Luke uses here for certainty can actually mean security or safety. It's as if Luke wants Theophilus and others to be secure in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to know what the angel told Mary. No word from God will ever fail. Which is essentially the same word that the angel said to Sarai thousands of years before. Well, perhaps you're here this morning and you say, Jeremy, I don't have doubts about the truthfulness of these stories and the overall truth of God fulfilling his promises. But I'm just struggling with what he's doing in my life. You're not alone. Maybe you're in a period of major uncertainty. Waiting. Watching. Wondering what's going to happen. And you feel more than a bit like Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age. When confronted with unbelievable news, Zechariah asked virtually the same question Abraham asked of God thousands of years before. How can I be sure of this? Zechariah is asking for certainty about God's plan for him, about how God is working in his life. And in response, the sign that he gets is that he has to go through a period of silence for a while. Silence is the sign for Zechariah. Zechariah is literally forced to only listen, to wait, and to trust God's word to him. We may feel like Zechariah, but may we learn, LVC, from this young woman, Mary, and be able to say in response to the fearful uncertainty of our personal lives, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Her cousin Elizabeth blesses Mary individually, but then says, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord fulfills his promises to her. I love that Elizabeth uses the third person there, she and her as if to open up the vista that blessed is anyone throughout all time who believes in the Lord's fulfillment of his promises. That in December 2019 and into 2020, his word will not fail. Let me go even younger than Mary. In this Advent season, may we learn from the unborn baby, John. 
In the most detailed of all the gospel accounts, Luke gives us one of these precious, precious details. That as Mary, who's pregnant with the creator of the universe, greets Elizabeth, John leaps for joy inside of his mother's womb. So whoever you are this morning, whatever you're going through, whatever season of uncertainty or trial or suffering or pain, may you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, respond to the coming of our Lord Jesus with joy and trust. He will be true to his word and he will fulfill his promises to his people. Let's pray. Lord, we are such fragile, fallible, broken people, as we've said. So what I'm asking that you would take words on a page, indeed words on a screen, and by your Holy Spirit, would you sink them into our hearts? You've promised that your word will not return empty, but will go out and fulfill what you intend. Come Holy Spirit. You promise to make a way for us. Whatever we're going through this morning, you are the way maker and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond in worship.